Thanks, Chanel. A um, couple things from me uh, today before we um, get into things. Um, did you know that happened? That's cool, hey? Um, a couple of announcements. One of them is that uh, as you came in, you would have received uh, these things along with your outlines. Uh, one of them is a Christian Union Connect card that we've designed specifically for Christian unions in WA. There's five, technically six, universities uh, in Perth. Uh, and all of them have a Christian union on, uh, on their campuses. Uh, and, and this is really for you to give to somebody you know at your church or in, in your friendship circles uh, to invite them to join a CU if they're going to come to university next year. Uh, it's the same reason we've given you this flyer. It's called Kickstart. Uh, it's basically a conference that we run in February for people starting university. And it's sort of a feeder conference into the community that is the Christian union at all of the universities uh, in Perth. Uh, and so we just want you to have those because you will know people in year 12 this year who will come to university next year. So we want you to be inviting them along. Now, caveat there, I want you to invite them if you think the Christian Union is worthwhile being involved in. Okay? This isn't like a kind of a forced command that you must do, but something that we want you to do through free action. And because you actually think being involved will be beneficial for their faith and for the growth of the gospel more broadly. So that's just, you know, caveat there. If you don't think the CU is worthwhile inviting people to, come and talk to me. Tell me why, and maybe we can have a chat about what we can do to change things, um, if indeed that's an appropriate thing, uh, so that we can help more and more Christians gather together, so that they can help more and more non-Christians gather together to hear the word of Jesus. So that's there for you. Uh, recommendation, if you've got a pen because you're a note taker, write down the name of the person that has come to mind on the flyer so that when you find it in your bag in three weeks' time after exams, you'll be like, oh, hang on, that's for Jerry or, or whatever else it is. So that's for you there for you to be thinking about. Um, the, the second thing that I want to uh, mention before we jump into the talk uh, is a really piece of uh, exciting news, uh, but also a piece of really sad news. Um, as some of you know, um, Rosemary is finishing up with us this year, and that's meant that we've had to scramble and try and find uh, somebody to come on campus and join the team, a female senior staff worker, because Rosemary's our only one, and we want our sisters uh, to be ministered to by older godly women, not just older godly men, because sometimes that's weird, can be helpful, but really we want to care for you girls uh, and have somebody on board, and we've found somebody. Uh, after about 18 months of searching, uh, we have approached somebody and they've said yes. Um, the reason it's both exciting and sad is it's because it's somebody you probably already know. Uh, it's Sarah Thorburn, uh, who's over at Curtin Christian Union. Okay? So two things to say. One, I'm not replacing Rosemary with her daughter. Um, I uh, am... <laughs> well, they're actually very different people. Uh, and, and just to kind of be upfront, if I was um, in charge of a staff team of a Christian union over east, Melbourne, Sydney, Queensland, I still would have approached Sarah to come. So it just happens that she's in the neighbourhood. Okay? So that's just the first thing I, I want you to be aware of. I, <laughs> I had to have at least two very heavy-hitting people high up in ministry tell me it was okay to ask her. I was not going to do it. Okay, so yeah, don't like the idea of poaching, but somehow that's just how it rolls. But, but, but one of the things that means for us is that we need to be very acutely aware and empathetic to the people at Curtin, our brothers and sisters there in the Christian Union, who have to say farewell to her as she comes over to serve amongst us. Uh, and so one of the things that our student president said really helpfully to the committee a couple of weeks ago, I want to repeat to you, is uh, in the same way that we celebrate in their uh, joys and successes in ministry, we also bear their losses. So their loss of Sarah is our loss of Sarah, even as we get her to come and work amongst us. 
So I just want us to be aware of those things because some of us will know people at the Curtin Christian Union. They're our brothers and sisters. Uh, and so we want to be thoughtful and caring of them as they process that information and learn what it is that we all have to learn at times, which is we need to let people go that we love to go and serve in other places. So that's just something I wanted to communicate to you directly. Uh, it's really exciting. How about I pray uh, for Sarah as she transitions and for the Curtin Christian Union, and then we'll jump into the talk. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are sovereign over your mission, that the Lord Jesus reigns and that he sends his spirit and gives gifts to all so that the mission of the gospel can proceed throughout the world. And we thank you more immediately that you have provided Sarah for us to come and work here at the UWA Christian Union. And as we celebrate, please help us to inhabit both emotional spaces and mourn at the same time for our brothers and sisters who are losing a valued gospel worker. Help us to be sensitive and thoughtful. Help us not to be proud, but instead help us to be good listeners and good lovers um, of all people uh, and all brothers and sisters, knowing that whatever happens, your cause and your gospel will prevail. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. Thank you in advance uh, for your thoughtfulness in that area. Um, let's talk Deuteronomy. We are in week 11. We're almost done. Uh, and if you've been with us for any length of time, you would have realised that we've been doing a couple of things in Deuteronomy, and one of them has been to kind of restore a healthy appreciation of the law. So I showed you this diagram last week, um, and I told you that most people view the law as rules. I had a conversation with a non-Christian just in this last hour, uh, somebody who, who was trying to understand Christianity, so wasn't antagonistic, and he was really keen to understand what Deuteronomy had to say, because he's like, isn't that just a whole bunch of rules? And I said, actually, no, it's not a whole bunch of rules. People think it is and that the law is bad, but actually it's the basis upon which God gives us to have a relationship with him. It describes how we love God and love people and how we maintain a relationship that honours him and ensures that we, in relationship to him, have blessing. But one of the things that we've seen as we've gotten towards the back end of Deuteronomy is that even that isn't true. Because as we've seen, Israel continues to rebel. And again and again, they're called wicked. And so what we saw is that the law for us in this day and age, after the person of Jesus Christ having come, doesn't act as rules, doesn't act as relationship, but actually acts as revealer. It revealed to us that obedience to the law is the means to blessing. But in a really weird paradox, it told us that every single person without exception who relies on the works of the law is under a curse. Now that creates a dilemma for us, doesn't it? Because it means we don't have any hope. If we try to obey the law, the means of blessing, we'll stuff it up and fail, we'll end up cursed. But if we therefore just go, well, stuff that, I'm just going to disobey the law, well, then we're already cursed and we can't get out of it. And so it seems like whichever way we approach the law of God, we're damned if we do and damned if we don't. And one of the questions then we want to ask is, why is this the case? Why has God designed the system in this way? Is there any way out of this spiral of unavoidable death? And that question matters, I think, for us, because if we genuinely believe, as we do at the Christian Union, that there is a God in heaven, that he has moral standards for us, and it's only when we meet them that we find blessing, and if we don't, then we find death and judgment, then we need to know how to get on that side of the equation rather than this one. But it also has implications, I think, for God. Because it starts to ask questions, doesn't it, about his righteous character. What's God up to? What's he doing? Is what he's doing fair? That's today, and a bit next week as well. But those are the sorts of things that we want to be exploring today. 
and a remind us of where we're at. Um, it feels like we've been in Deuteronomy for a very long time. Uh, we've done a whole bunch of things, but it's still the same set of speeches that Moses has been making to Israel as they stand on the plains of Moab on the borders of the promised land. This whole thing has been a set of speeches. Uh, and if you remember, uh, those, those speeches kind of unroll and all of them are set to persuade Israel to obey God as they enter the land. Now, here's a, a rough structure of Deuteronomy. You can see, uh, at least as I've broken it up, I think there's three speeches in Deuteronomy. The first one dealt with Israel's past and how they'd failed to obey God. Uh, the second, which is the big chunk of Deuteronomy, uh, outlined the law. And it was declared, it was explained, the blessings and the curses were laid out for obedience and disobedience. And now we hit chapter 29 and 30, which is Moses' third speech. After having laid out the law and how God would have him love him and love them in the land, the nation of Israel has come to a point of decision. It's crunch time. They have to make a choice. They have to choose as they enter the land which way they will live. So if you've got your outlines there, you'll see the headings. First of all, I want to have a look at Israel's choice. Now, the whole of Deuteronomy really is about the choice of Israel. Moses is persuading them to listen to him and obey the law. But it's here in this final speech in chapter 29 to 30 that we see two things that we haven't seen before, at least not in the, um, the kind of the, the foreground that we see them in in these chapters. Uh, and the first one is who is making the choice. And we see this in chapter 29. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, have them open to Deuteronomy chapter 29. And we're going to look at verse 2. Because at verse 2, we see that Moses summoned all the Israelites. And it gives us a starting point for who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the entire nation of Israel. And if we keep reading, we jump down to verse 10. This is what we see. All of you are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God, your leaders and chief men, your elders and officials, and all the other men of Israel, just in case you thought it was getting sexist, together with your children and your wives, just in case you were thinking he was getting racist, and the foreigners living in your camps who chop your wood and carry your water. So here is a national agreement, and one that involves every individual, from the greatest to the least. But here's where things get really interesting. Have a look at verse 14. It says, I am making this covenant with its oath, not only with you who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God, but also with those who are not here today. Now, on a straight reading, what that seems to imply is that there are people who are kind of homesick or something like that, or they've gone away on holidays and they'll come back to the plains of Moab in a couple of weeks. But what Moses is actually referring to here is the generations that will come after this particular generation. And that principle is important to grasp because in the coming chapters, what we will see is Moses' words as he explains the law are written down for future generations. And that means then that even as Moses calls on this present, uh, this present generation to choose today, and we'll see this word today come up all throughout these passages today, um, he, it's a call that is not just on the present generation, but on every subsequent generation of Israelites that come after them. A call to make the same choice that he's calling these people to make and with the same immediacy. So the thing to understand is this is not a one-off decision made by committee that you know, future generations just have to deal with. This is a choice that will confront every individual throughout the history of Israel. So that's the who, not just the present generation but every generation after them. The second thing that we find out about Israel's choice uh, is at the other end of our passage today, in chapter 30, verse 15. 
And it's the thing that they're choosing. So have a look at chapter 30, verse 15. Here's the choice that will echo down through history. This is sort of like the kind of the climax of Moses' speech. This is where he gets red in the face and he's just kind of really just getting into it. I'm not going to do that for you. You can let your own imaginations run wild. This is what he says to them at the end of 30 chapters of persuasion. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Here we have the biblical basis for two ways to live. But there's a problem, I hope you've noticed it. One of the things we see from these verses is that Matthias Media got the name wrong. Because there's no such thing as two ways to live. There's only one ways to live. And that's to love the Lord your God. And so the choice to love God or to turn away from God and chase after other idols isn't a choice between equal alternatives. And, And Moses wants this to be very, very clear. Have a look at verse 20. To choose God is to choose life. He is the source of life. And so to cut relational ties with him and turn away and bound down to other gods was to cut yourself off from the one source of life that exists. It was to choose death and invite destruction. So that's the choice before Israel, the choice for every successive generation after them. Today, choose the Lord, and in so doing, choose life. Now last week I pointed out to us that this choice was the central question of the book of Deuteronomy and that the consistent answer that Moses gives, even as he calls on them to choose life, is that they will only ever choose death. So for example, and this is in Deuteronomy 31, 27, see if I've got that up on the screen, I do, um, saving you from turning one page, I hope you appreciate that. It says this, For I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. If you have been rebellious against the Lord while I am still alive and with you, how much more will you rebel after I die? And of course, what this does, once you hear Moses or God say this again and again, tons and tons of times throughout Deuteronomy, is it raises a question about us, uh, a question for us about Israel's ability. We know that Israel won't obey the law. That's pretty clear. Does that mean that they can't? And to answer that question, we're going to have a look at verses 11 to 14 of chapter 30. So if you look there in your Bibles, I'll read from verse 11. This is what Moses says just before he calls them to the choice. He says, Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea, so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us, so we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. Now here's my question for you. Looking at those verses, verses 11 to 14, is Moses saying that Israel can obey the law? 30 seconds with the person next to you, go for it. Alrighty, 
I'm going to bring you back from a brief discussion. I feel like that's unfair. I spent several hours reading about this, trying to work this question out. How do you guys go? Is it a yes or is it a no? Is Moses saying that Israel can obey the law? Hands up for yes? You want to have a yes and a no? Yeah, I think it does get a bit complex, doesn't it? My answer, ultimately, I concluded, was that it is no. Have a closer look at the verse. Verse 11, what does he say? He says, what he's commanding them is not too difficult or beyond your reach. Now, if all we had was this verse, then my answer, I think, would be different. I would say yes. That's exactly what Moses is saying. But this is another good lesson as to why we can't just read verses in isolation in the Scripture. We need to hold them together in context. Because what's verse 12 to 14 doing? It's explaining what Moses means by too difficult or beyond your reach. And everything that he talks about in those verses has to do with accessibility. Look at how he describes the law. It's not in heaven, so that you have to go into heaven to find out what it is so that you can then obey it. And it's not beyond the sea, so you have to kind of go across the sea to find out what it is so that you can obey it. Verse 14, no, the word is very near. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you may obey it. Now, when we understand this, we realize then that Moses isn't actually answering the question, can they obey at all? He's actually not giving them an encouragement. He's removing from them an excuse. He's telling them that God has given them everything that they need to obey. And so if they choose not to, the problem is not with God and his law, it's with Israel. Now, I was trying to think of an analogy to kind of really help us grasp that concept because it is a bit tricky. Uh, and I was coming up with nothing until I was at Rosemary's Farewell last night and Tom Creek told a fantastic story about cooking beef soup. <laughs> Here's how the story went. Tom moved out of home, realised he couldn't cook. Rosemary realised he couldn't cook either and thought, I know, I'm going to help Tom out. I'm going to give him a recipe for beef soup. And I'm just going to give him the recipe, simple, step by step. Don't contradict the story, Rosemary. <laughs> I've taken the analogy, I've modified things, it's probably not reality, let's just roll with it. So she gives him a, a recipe, it's perfect, it, it makes perfect sense, it's in a language he can read and understand, it turns out Tom's literate, which is very exciting. <laughs> she even gives him the ingredients to make the soup. Now what does Tom go and do? He goes to make the soup, but he tries to modify the recipe. Whose fault is it that the soup didn't turn out right? It's not Rosemary's. She gave him everything he needed to make the soup. The onus was on Tom. And so what these verses highlight for us is Israel's responsibility. Whatever they choose, it's on them. How does that help us answer the question, can Israel obey? Well, it doesn't really, does it? The book of Deuteronomy never goes so far as to say that Israel can't obey the law. It's left answered. And we want to be sensitive to that in the book. But I do want to press us a bit, particularly in light of what I know the rest of Scripture says, because it is suggestive. Because even though they are given a genuine choice to obey or disobey, they consistently are told that they are rebellious and stiff-necked and they won't obey. And so it seems to me that as we read Deuteronomy, there is an inescapable reality that because of who they are, they cannot do what God calls them to do. At least not completely. And so what these verses, verses 11 to 14, make clear for us is that their inability has nothing to do with what God has done for them. The problem lies with them. They're the ones that are morally culpable for their actions. And of course what that does is that pushes us to ask the next question, which is what then precisely is wrong with Israel? 
Why is it that they consistently turn from the Lord, who is the source of all blessing and life? That brings us to what the law reveals for us today, and it's our need for a new heart. You see it there in chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. You see, the problem with Israel was their hearts. Now, in the Old Testament scriptures, the heart was the seat of the inner person. In our culture, we kind of associate the heart purely with emotions. But in the Hebrew culture, it was the place not just for the emotions, but for the mind and the will as well. It was the place of moral decision making. So think about it like words like reason and consciousness and memory and reflection and judgment and discernment. All of those words are used in association with the heart in the scriptures. And what Moses is suggesting here when he says that God must circumcise their hearts is that Israel's capacity to do those things on their own, morally reason, choose good things, was compromised. And so if they were to obey God's law and choose life, they needed to first circumcise their hearts. Now, what does that mean? Like, how do you de-skin a heart? Well, there are only two references to circumcision in Deuteronomy, uh, and that image isn't one of them, so we can praise God for that. Um, so this is the first one, or rather the second in chapter 30, and the other one is in chapter 10. And here's what chapter 10 says. Turn over there in your Bibles. Um, this time we will make a bit of effort. Chapter 10, verse 14. Here's our other reference to circumcision. This is what it says. Chapter 10, verse 14. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. And a key piece of information, the way that God marked them out as set apart from all the other nations was to give them a physical sign. He circumcised every male in the nation. And knowing that helps us understand the next verse, verse 16. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. And so what Moses is saying here is that it's not the outward circumcision that matters. It's the inward one. It's an inward attitude of the heart that sets yourself apart for the service and obedience of God. And the problem with Israel is that they don't have that yet. They're stiff-necked. They're like a donkey. They just don't go where you want them to go. And so they need to circumcise their hearts. But as Moses continues in his speeches, it becomes abundantly clear that they cannot do that operation on themselves. So back to our passage for today. Have a look at chapter 29, verse 4. Chapter 29, verse 4 says this. To this day, the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. Now, the translation here is really unfortunate because the word mind is actually the word heart. And what this tells us is that the master of the heart is not the person who has it, but the God who made it. And so if Israel is to have any hope of loving the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their strength, then it is God himself who needs to intervene and circumcise their hearts. And what's true for Israel, I think, is true for all people. You and I have a heart problem. For those of you reading Mark Uncover with a non-Christian and you want them to see God's assessment of humanity, this is where you take them. You take them to Mark chapter 7 because what does Jesus say? He says this, It is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. 
sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, the list goes on. And he concludes and he says, all these evils come from inside and defile a person. This is God's, this is Jesus' assessment of humanity. humanity. And we know that this is true, don't we? Because even on our best day, we are incapable of choosing life consistently. We might make a bunch of good moral choices, kind of pat ourselves on the back. But, but even though we know that some of those behaviours that you know, God tells us not to do are destructive, not pleasing to him, we still do them, don't we? We still cut people off in traffic, still look at pornography. We still say nasty things to our family, especially our siblings, in anger. We still lie and we still cheat, we exaggerate the truth, we hide things when we're threatened and we're anxious. We are incapable of saying no to sin. I mean, go, go try it for a day. You can't do it. You're the donkey. You're the one who will not move. You have a heart problem. And what Moses tells us here is that if we desire to obey God, then our only hope is God's gracious intervention. And so one of the big questions is, when will this happen? At what point in history does God intervene and circumcise the hearts of his people that they may obey him? And to answer that, we want to have a closer look at the chronology of chapter 30, verses 1 to 10. Now, the timing in these verses is not super clear, uh, and it's created a whole bunch of problems, but here's a rough picture of what we see. Uh, Scan your eyes down. From verse 1, here's the first thing. At some point in the future, Israel disobeys. They're cursed by God, and they're scattered among the nations in exile. Uh, At some unknown point after that, in verse 2, in exile, Israel repents, and they return to the Lord, and they obey him with all their heart. Third, in response to that, verses 3 to 5, God restores them. He gathers Israel back from the nations and returns them to the promised land. And it's at this point in verse 6 that we see that God circumcises the hearts of Israel, that they may love him with all of their heart. Uh, And then to kind of round off the timeline, in verse 8, we see that Israel will again obey the Lord and follow his commands, this time fully, uh, and they will be made more prosperous than they were before. And we see that not only in verse 9, but also in verse 5 as well. Now, looking at that rough timeline, what that seems to suggest is that the circumcision of the heart that Israel desperately needs happens at some point soon after they return from exile. They'll live in the land, but this time they'll obey God fully and consistently. Now, so far, so good, but here's the problem. That never happens. Israel returns from exile. That certainly happens. God is true to his promise there. But they're just as bad as they were before. And you can go and read Ezra and Nehemiah and you can go and see this. They break God's law. There is zero evidence of the heart transplant that Moses is talking about. And so we get to the end of the Old Testament and we're just waiting. Nothing's happened. God has not intervened. That permanent intervention has not yet occurred. And it's not until 400 years later after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, where he pours out his spirit on his people, that we finally see the circumcision of heart we've been waiting for. And we know that because of Romans chapter 10. So turn there in your Bibles. Romans is in the New Testament of the Bible. Um, It's the fifth book. You've got the four Gospels, then Acts, and then Romans. Romans is written by Paul. and He's got quite an argument. We're kind of plotting in at a certain point in Romans chapter 10. And we're going to read from verse 5. You'll understand why we've gone here in a moment. Romans chapter 10, verse 5. 
Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, one of the striking things about this passage is that Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 to 14. But he seems to use it in an entirely different way to the way that Moses did. So, question for you with the person next to you. What are the similarities and differences in Paul's use of the quote? Give you a bit of time with the person next to you to work that one out, and then we'll pull them together. Go for it. All righty, I'm going to bring this back. How'd you go? It's, um, it's an interesting exercise, isn't it? How about we start with some of the differences? What were some of the differences you saw? Just call them out. Let's be snappy and let's, let's identify some of them. Yeah, yeah, so they actually take the subject out. It's no longer the word of God that is the law. It's the word of God that is the gospel, uh, which we see there is that Jesus is Lord in verse 9. So that's one of the key differences. What are some of the others we see? Uh, far less for us to do. In <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and what, what gives you that impression? Uh, well, it just says declare with your mouth and believe with your heart. That's really the only thing that we have to do. Yeah, yeah, and I think the big change, you, you see that actually at the end of verse 14 of Deuteronomy 30, Where does it finish? So that you may obey it. And yet that's actually omitted from the quote. And so it's not works-based at all. He turns the mouth and the heart into confession and belief rather than doing things. Yeah, I think those are the two key main differences. Um, What about the similarities? I think there's one big one. What do you notice? I've stuffed it up now, hey, because now if I say something and it's wrong, I'm like, oh, what have I done? Yeah, it's the nearness of the word, isn't it? Both words are accessible and near. And what's interesting, actually, is as you continue to read Paul's argument in chapter 10 of Romans, it becomes obvious that he is actually making the exact same argument that Moses was making. Specifically, he's saying to the nation of Israel, you have no excuse not to respond to the word of God that is the gospel because it has come near. It's accessible and understandable. And so just as with the law, now with the gospel, you have no excuses if you ignore it. But the difference is here in Romans, unlike in Deuteronomy, where people weren't able to respond to the word like we've already seen, here in Romans, people are responding to the word. And so when does God circumcise the hearts of his people? Well, it's at the point that the gospel comes near Jesus comes, provides salvation, provides his spirit to change our hearts. Now, having answered all of those questions then, it's time to think about what this means for us. Because that has a lot of implications for how we respond to Israel's choice today. But we need to pay attention to how God ultimately fulfills his promise to circumcise the hearts of his people. Otherwise, what we're going to do is we're going to respond incorrectly like we saw last week as well. You see, for the Israelites standing on the plains of Moab, the choice was pretty straightforward. Moses puts it uh, in front of them, and it was a really tough pill to swallow. Because basically what he's saying to them is you need to patiently keep returning to the law forever under its curse, forever not able to obey it fully, 
trusting in the promise of God that one day he'll turn up to change things. One day he'll turn up to enable them to do the thing that they were commanded to do. It was a hard and depressing road ahead. But for us today, we don't need to wait. Because the word is near, both in the sense that we know it and understand it, but now also in the sense that we can obey it. So, just as Moses speaks and says, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. He doesn't just speak to the Israelites on the plains of Moab. He doesn't even just speak to the generations that would come after them. He also speaks to you and me. But not of the law and our need to obey it, but of Christ's gospel and our need to believe it. And that's why the differences in how Paul uses the Deuteronomy quote are so important. He is very clear here, isn't he? The ultimate fulfillment does not involve a righteousness or a right standing with God based on what we do. Instead, it's a righteousness that comes through faith. That's why he emits that phrase, so that we can obey. You see, the righteousness that he gives us in the gospel is Christ's righteousness. It comes when we declare with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, believe in our hearts that he raised him from the dead. That's what the circumcision of heart enables. It enables somebody not to obey the law, but to respond to the gospel with repentance and trust in Jesus. So let me close by saying two things. First of all, um, actually, let's, let's re- rework that one. Um, two things. The law reveals our need for a new heart. It promises that one day that God will fulfill it. And that means, one, if somebody responds to the gospel and becomes a Christian, then we need to know that it is entirely the work of God. That's the first thing we need to appreciate. We cannot claim credit. Because all we did was bring to the table a faulty heart. You were just lying on the operating table. You can't just you know, wake up healthy after a 14-hour operation and say, you know that really tricky bypass bit that you did with the scalpel? Yeah, that was all me. Right? You don't get the privilege of saying that. God intervened when we were helpless. The New Testament talks about it. God intervenes when we were dead. And so the eternal life that is promised in Christ, that we have received, it's entirely the free gift of God. It's a result of his gracious intervention in a life that could only choose death. And what that does, that just moves us to a great level of humility, doesn't it? Moves us to unending thankfulness for what God has done in our lives. So that's the first thing. It's entirely the work of God. But second, I want you to see that the call to choose life remains a genuine choice. The Bible never affirms God's complete and sovereign work in salvation and then says, therefore, do nothing. Even though our response to the gospel is wholly the work of God, that doesn't morally excuse us for not believing it. Because just like the Israelites in Moses' day, who couldn't claim that they didn't know the law of God, we can't claim to know the gospel of Christ. And so, just like Rosemary's recipe, God has given us everything that we need to choose life. Not just in the land, but in the new creation. And everything that we need to escape death. Not just in physical exile, but spiritual torment in hell. And so even as this passage talks about the necessity of God's intervention in somebody's heart to receive the gospel, don't miss the fact that it still requires an active response from you. I still remember working as an engineer. I have to say, this is one of the strangest conversations I have ever had. Uh, There was a man, let's call him Bill. Um, I got the opportunity to share the gospel with him. Uh, It was really exciting. Uh, We were getting somewhere. And to my great surprise, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know all that. I believe it. 
but I'm waiting for God to give me his Holy Spirit and renew my heart. And I was like, okay. And then he actually he had this at work. No, it wasn't just at home on his bookshelf. He pulled out a photocopy of a book chapter of theology expressing everything that we've just seen in Deuteronomy 29.30. Right? The heart is desperately wicked above all things, that it will always turn away from God unless God changes it and enables it to turn to him. And the theology was spot on. It was brilliant. Every time somebody becomes a Christian, it's the work of God. But the thing that he had failed to understand was that he was still morally responsible to, to respond to it. He was just sitting there waiting to become a Christian, thinking that it would just happen to him out of the blue. And so in effect, what he had done is he had relinquished the choice of life. And as far as I'm aware, I I never really talked to this man again. I never got the chance. He is still choosing death. Not passively, but actively. Even though the word of the gospel is as near to him as was possible. And so to finish, let me say, don't wait for something to happen. Don't put it off as though the time was on your side. Moses addresses you today. And he sets before you life and death, blessings and curses. And my question for you is, which one will you choose? Praise God for his grace that he has shown us in Jesus that you can make that choice. Amen.